Hey everybody, this is Kai. The episode you're about to hear aired live on Sunday night. So that means before the world read Justice Alito's leaked draft of an expected Supreme Court ruling that will sometime this spring or summer overturn Roe and end the constitutional protection for abortion. We'll of course get to that story, but as it turns out, a lot of this episode is relevant in that it captures the way many, many voters feel about the Democratic Party right now and its willingness to fight for what they believe. So here you go. Would you say you are a Democrat or a Republican? Um, Depends on what the issues are. I don't identify with one or the other. How would you describe the energy of the Democratic Party right now? Honestly, I don't feel the energy like I used to. I don't feel it as being as progressive and forward-moving as it once was, but I do feel the hope in the Democratic Party. I feel that much. If the Democratic Party were a person, what descriptive words would you like to see used to describe that person? Let's see. More of a upbeat party with that wants to help and that, that has hope and that is encouraging and uplifting and motivational and all those things. That's the type of person I would like to see them as being. I'm not feeling that right now. Welcome to the show. I'm Kai Wright, and I'm joined tonight by someone who has recently set the Democratic Party on fire. Mallory McMorrow is a state senator in Michigan. She's a Democrat whose district encompasses Oakland County. So that's a lot of the Detroit suburbs and some of Detroit itself. A couple of weeks ago now, Senator McMorrow gave a short, impassioned speech on the state house floor that has spawned so much conversation. It hit and surpassed viral status online, 14.6 million views on Twitter when I last looked. And some people think it may fundamentally change the Democratic Party strategy in responding to the culture wars. Senator McMorrow joins us tonight to share the story behind her speech. And thank you so much, Senator, for making this time. Thanks, Kai. I appreciate it. I gather this story actually begins at a prayer breakfast some weeks ago, right? Yeah, and it wasn't even a prayer breakfast. So our Senate uh, sessions all open with an invocation every session. And some people can argue whether that is an appropriate thing in in government, but it is. That's that's where we have in Michigan. And typically it is non-confrontational, just setting the tone for our session uh, to remind people that we serve 10 million residents of the state of Michigan and, and to use our best judgment uh, in service to people. Uh, But Senator Lana Tice, it was her turn to give the invocation, and she stood up and under the guise of a prayer, pleaded with God for guidance and protection. And she said, because our, our children are under attack. And there was a long pause and then she said, by by forces that would have them see or know or learn um, things against their parents' will. Mm. And a few of us walked out because it was a very thinly veiled uh, replica of language like Florida's don't say gay bill uh, and, and just such a misuse of of prayer. So that that's where that's where I think yeah, this started. Yeah. And then you wake up a couple of Mondays ago um, and you open your email and what do you find? 
so, so it wasn't even opening my email. So my husband was out of the country. He was in Germany. And he texted me on a Monday with a screenshot from an email that I think he saw circulating on Twitter that accused me by name. It said, Mallory McMorrow D. Snowflake uh, wanted to groom and sexualize kindergartners and make eighth graders believe that they were responsible for slavery. How did you feel when you initially read that? Like, what was your initial, like, immediate reaction to it? I, I just... As speechless as I am now, my, my jaw was on the floor. My stomach was in a knot. I mean, I just, it's so horrible and vile. I am the mom of a one-year-old. And the idea that, you know, another mother and a colleague would accuse me of, of grooming, which, you know, is befriending a child for the purpose of sexually assaulting them. Mm-hmm. It's just so beyond the pale, I, I was sick to mm. my stomach. And did you feel like, okay, this is in reaction to what, to me walking out on the prayer breakfast? It, uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> I think reaction to that, but but there were a few of us and I was trying to figure out why me specifically uh, versus the number of us who did walk out. And I, I had um, taken to my social media following that prayer uh, just to say that I thought it was inappropriate, mm-hmm. that it was a misuse of prayer. And I pointed out, uh, you know, the Utah governor having recently vetoed legislation to ban trans kids from playing sports and really saying openly that he's never seen so much anger directed at so few. Uh, and in my own way, trying to say we need to get back to real mm-hmm. issues. But uh, that must have been it, you know, that that I dared to stand yeah. up with the LGBTQ community and say, this is not acceptable. And and what was your initial impulse on just like whether or how to react to this publicly? I mean, it's, you know, a question that has twisted a lot of people in the Democratic Party up uh, about like, well, do I, do I respond to this kind of stuff? What was your initial reaction to it? You know, I, I think the initial reaction for anybody is is to want to hit back, um, but it gets into to mud flinging. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I think that you see all the time Democrats accusing Republicans of things and Republicans accusing Democrats of things. And I just, I wanted to take the time and not say something that I was going to regret mm-hmm. and, and something that wouldn't actually help address the real issue. Mm-hmm. So I, I sat on it for the day. Um, and really wanted to think very carefully about how and when I responded and what I said. People who are different are not the reason that our roads are in bad shape after decades of disinvestment or that healthcare costs are too high or that teachers are leaving the profession. I want every child in this state to feel seen, heard, and supported, not marginalized and targeted because they are not straight, white, and Christian. I wanted to to make the statement on the floor, uh, A, to address the issue uh, out in the open, and and then to really kind of reclaim the identity because what what started it all was prayer, right? And we've seen Christianity weaponized to target marginalized people, which to me is just so hateful and and unacceptable that, that I really wanted to kind of reclaim my own identity and identity of a lot of people like me, which is, you know, not marginalized suburban white moms. Uh, and for me, I, I happen to be Christian as well, a raised Christian, uh, and, and hopefully get us out of this place where those things can be weaponized and used to target 
already targeted people. I mean, can you say a little bit more about that? Because part of the speech, you know, is you kept repeating this mantra about your identity. So who am I? I am a straight, white, Christian, married, suburban mom. Straight, white, and Christian. Straight, white, Christian, married, suburban mom. I want my And there's just something about the way you said it and spelled it out. I learned that service was far more important than performative nonsense like being seen in the same pew every Sunday or writing... And named it as an identity, even in this conversation. That's not something... We don't hear those things named as identities. We hear, you know, black, gay... Um, something other than Christian uh, named as identities. Right. And I, we just so rarely hear that period, let alone from a politician. It was obviously intentional. Why was that such an important part of the response? And I think to put it into context, you know, I, I flipped a district that was a Republican district when I ran in 2018. So I, I represent a very marginal, pretty evenly split district. And, and we have seen the rise in pressure on our school boards and the same sort of trend that we're seeing around the country of kind of far-right groups taking advantage of moms. Uh, I had a conversation with a constituent probably a month or two ago who has started to become active in, in some of these groups of moms who were frustrated with school and I think acknowledging that moms have had to deal with a lot for the past two years with the pandemic and school closures and trying to balance work and, and being a teacher and a mom and all of these things all at once. But I I talked to this constituent who said, I think that parents have a lot of real concerns and real frustrations, but her her concern, even though she's becoming active in some of these groups, is that some of the focus of these groups is to drive towards hate, to try to rile up about the active teaching of of history and slavery and critical race theory and, you know, now the anti-LGBTQ focus. And that really stuck in my head is thinking about um, the fact that I know most moms like me don't feel this way and that we are being taken advantage of and lied to by people who want to create this moral panic. How did you feel when you finished the speech? I mean, what, what did you think had just happened? I I was standing at the microphone and looking at Senator Tice the whole time, and she couldn't even look back at me. I looked at the back of her head the entire speech. And, you know, I think that that's probably part of the reason why I got a little more animated Mm -hmm. as it went. You know, this was something that I I had written down and I had thought about. um, But the fact that I couldn't even be dignified with acknowledgement made me angrier than I was at the start of it. And, you know, I felt... I felt good that I said what I said, and I felt confident that in my own head, I had found a way to hit back, but without without attacking. Mm. You know, I, I think I, I really tried to address the issue and not the person, and I felt like I had done that. And w- what politically in terms of what you were trying to accomplish. You know, I mean, this was a political act, obviously, you know. Um, What did you hope that it would accomplish? I hear um, you saying about the stuff that you just had to, like, do for yourself. Um, But as a political act, what did you... So any any kind of speech on the floor is is really me speaking to, to my constituents, to the people in my district, because these are, you know, nobody watches 
the Michigan session <laughs> live. It's, well, maybe know, we're going to be watching it now, but <laughs> my outside of like my grandma who tunes in every single day, there's not right. that many people who watch it, but you know, we get videos of it and I, t- I typically post it to my Facebook page or my Twitter page or put it in an email to talk to my constituents and say, this is an issue and, and responding, thinking about, you know, the people who I represent. And as, you know, there's there's kind of more panic around these issues that are manufactured, just saying, no, these are not real issues. This is what happened. This is why it's wrong. And it's a deflection from very real issues, which are, you know, the quality of our roads and healthcare costs are too high and teachers are leaving the profession, which are, you know, why moms are frustrated in the first place. Well, one thing you accomplished is you got the president's attention, President Biden called you. What what did he say to you? Yeah, and I uh, I actually missed the call when the president called uh, because I was putting my daughter to bed. So he actually called me back the next day, and that's a story that I'm always just going to hold over her head. Is, is, is Noah? You were more important than the president. Never forget that. Um, but he, you know, he said thank you, and and I think he. You know, he's he's an Irish Catholic. I was raised Irish Catholic. And and I think he said, he told me, you said what needed to be said in the way that it, it needed to be said. And not to divulge t- too much of a, a personal conversation, but he acknowledged he's been doing this a lot longer than I have um, and, and said he's never seen it this bad and we have to put an end to it. There has been heated debate in the Democratic Party about whether and how candidates should respond to the culture war arguments that Republicans are making this year. And so before you gave this speech, did you have an opinion about that? Yeah, I mean, so I, I have an opinion as somebody who who had never run for office before Donald Trump was elected. I am one of those women who woke up the next day and, and was pissed off and <laughs> ran for office and, and beat an incumbent and— that's why I'm here. Uh, and I think that for me, we have to call hate what it is. And when I think about my constituents, again, and it's it's a pretty evenly split district, I get so mad that they're being lied to, even if they support, you know, Republicans, because Republicans are, are deflecting because they don't have any policy solutions. So that is, there's the LGBTQ community and the black community who, who is being attacked directly. But then Everybody else is also being attacked because you're being made to believe that all of your problems are because a trans fifth grader wants to play soccer. And it's just a lie. And I I just feel very strongly that it's not about weeding into super complex issues and debating the merits of it. It's calling out lies when they're lies. How do you think this would have been received had you not been a straight white Christian mom? If you had given this speech and you were, you know, a black lesbian or um, some other identity, do do you think people in the party, particularly even among Democrats, you know, would have received this the same way? Or am I being cynical that way? No, I don't think the speech would have been received the same way. And I want to be very candid my colleagues who are black, who are gay, have been fighting this fight a hell of a lot longer than I have and getting up and saying the same things. And it often falls on on deaf ears. And it is strange, you know, to be a, a frankly privileged white woman from the suburbs who is now kind of getting this attention. But my hope is that I'm speaking to people like me who are not marginalized, who are not under attack to say we can't keep asking 
the, the people who are being attacked to stand up for themselves because it hasn't worked so far. You can't fight alone. Yes, the email attacked me, but generally, however bad I felt on one Monday is significantly worse if you are the parent of a trans kid who is just trying to live. And so, so no, I don't think it would have been received the same way. Um, and I'm glad that it's resonated, but it's not going to mean anything unless a hell of a lot more, you know, <laughs> suburban white moms stand up and do the same thing and take the hits. So I want to be very clear right now. Call me whatever you want. I hope you brought in a few dollars. I hope it made you sleep good last night. I know who I am. I know what faith and service means and what it calls for in this moment. We will not let hate win. Mallory McMorrow is a state senator in Michigan. She is up for re-election in a newly drawn district that still includes much of the Detroit suburbs. Thank you so much for spending this time with us, Senator. Thank you, Kai. So that's where Mallory McMurrow stands. But for as long as I can remember, and I've been covering culture war politics since the 90s, whenever sexuality and race come up in campaigns, Democrats have mostly tried to change the subject. Conventional wisdom has said that their voters simply don't care about this stuff, at least not when they vote. It's a distraction. So what about you? If you vote as a Democrat or even consider yourself an independent, do you want your elected officials at whatever level to fight the culture wars like Mallory McMorrow has done? Is that important to you? And if it's not, what is important to you right now? What do you want? So much about Democratic Party politics has focused on opposing Donald Trump's movement. But what do you want Democrats to stand for right now? We'll take your calls after a break, and I'll be joined by John Nichols from The Nation magazine. He spent many, many years arguing for a more aggressive Democratic Party, particularly in congressional politics. And he says Mallory McMurrow may have shown the way to victory. Stay with us. Hey everyone, this is Kusha. I'm a producer. Quick heads up, over the next few weeks, our feed is going to be a little bit different. And it's for good reason. Our colleagues at WNYC Studios have been doing some incredible new journalism and the United States of Anxiety will highlight that work. So what does that mean for you? Well, on top of our weekly show, which is still dropping each Monday, we're going to spice up the feed with a few short specials. The first one of these specials is already out. It's a preview of a new podcast called Dead End, a New Jersey political murder mystery. You can hear Kai talk to our colleague Nancy Solomon about her reporting, as well as a short preview of the series. So do check that out. And looking ahead a little further, we have more developments to share with you about this show. So keep an ear out for updates over the next few weeks. As always, if you want to talk to us, email us and send a voice message to anxiety at WNYC.org or talk to us on Twitter. Use the hashtag US of anxiety. All right. Thanks. Happy listening. Welcome back. I'm Kai Wright, and I'm joined now by my friend, John Nichols. 
John is the national correspondent for The Nation magazine and has spent years arguing that the Democratic Party not only needs a more progressive politic, but a less cautious one in general. He has been a close watcher of state and local elections in particular, and after Mallory McMurrow's speech on the floor of the Michigan State House went viral recently, John wrote in The Nation that she'd provided a model for confronting the culture wars. And John, you've got me tongue-tied. I'm so excited to talk to you. Welcome to the show. I'm sure I'll be uh, equally tongue-tied, and I'm very glad to be with you, my friend. So what was your reaction when you first heard that speech? Well, you know, I saw it like uh, just about everybody else, which was on my Twitter feed. You know, there was like a, you know, came up, I I popped it. And, um, you know, I wouldn't say my jaw dropped, but it was pretty close. I was mm. I was really struck. And I, I think that that I, I wrote about it in print and on, online, uh, but I don't think you can really capture it that way. In fact, I don't even think video is as good as how it came across just now when you were playing it on radio, because part of what made it so powerful was the um, anger in her voice, Mm. the passion in her voice. It wasn't just the words. It was that um, you could tell she was deeply, deeply concerned about this, that this was something that she had to say. And that is so different than usual democratic politics, right? Because usual democratic politics is very carefully calculated talking points that you know exactly what they're going to say next. You know exactly how they're going to say it. And you also know that you're not going to be very excited about Um, what she did. And and she's not alone. As she well points out, there are other people who've been talking about these issues for a long time. But what, what she did in this circumstance was push back. And she didn't push back cautiously. She didn't push back in some sort of academic way. She pushed back as a passionate advocate. And I think, frankly, that resonated with a lot of people. Yeah. And have you seen much else of that sort? I mean, as you said, a lot of people, there, there are people in the party who have been, who have been fighting back in this way, but we don't, we don't hear about them um, in the same way. Um, who else have you seen doing that lately? And what do you think was unique about her that made us, that, that made it go viral? There are definitely people who've been speaking up. I mean, just watch Cori Bush in Congress. I mean, she speaks with a deep passion and and holds nothing back. Rashida Tlaib out of Detroit um, has, you know, again and again shown uh, not just her intellect, but also her passion and, and has brought it across. And there's others who do as well. I mean, most notably, these are women of color that you're naming. They are women of color. And in, and in fact, um, a Muslim American woman and uh, and, you know, somebody who came out of the Black Lives Matter. I and mean, these are people who, you know, have experiences that that bring them right to the heart of a lot of these issues. Right. And and yeah, Kai, I'm not missing missing your point here. Um, I think people of color have been you know at the forefront of talking about these issues for a long time. I think people from the LGBTQ community have been out there. And you don't want to you want to know. I mean, if, if you want to go back for some history on it. Look at how Harvey Milk talked about stuff in the late 1970s. And I, I, I reference Harvey Milk because it is so similar frequently to um, what we're now talking about with uh, Mallory McMorrow. Mm-hmm. He got, he didn't just gather his arguments and speak calmly. He spoke passionately. And he, Harvey Milk used to say he did it for a reason because he wanted it to be noticed. And 
he wanted, he knew that in San Francisco where he was an elected official and an openly gay man, um, that it, you know, it would be heard in a certain way. He said he wanted to shout loud enough so some kid in Nebraska who felt completely cut off and didn't think there was anybody like him or anybody that cared about him could hear it as well. And I will give Mallory McMorrow credit because she acknowledged her privilege, but she also in her speech really did, I think, try to speak to people who are vulnerable to people who are um, beaten up on so much in our politics. And I think that's part of what gave it power. Listeners, join us in this conversation. If you vote as a Democrat or consider yourself a swing voter, you know, somebody who switches parties from year to year, how do you want Democrats to respond to the culture war arguments that Republicans have very clearly decided they want to make this year's elections about? How important is that to you as a voter? I'm not inviting you to be an armchair strategist here. I want to know how important this is to you as a voter. And if not the culture wars, what is important to you? What do you want the Democrats to stand for? And let's hear from Judy in Port Washington, Long Island. Judy, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you. Uh, my biggest issue is my parents and their whole generation were terrorized by the McCarthy witch hunting over nothing. And we, as Democrats, can't seem to mobilize public uproar or even concern. We have a real crisis. We have people in Congress who don't believe in democracy. And we can't seem to mobilize any kind of feeling that this is not the way things should be. We can't let this go on. If if the shoe had been on the other foot, can you imagine people would be so blasé? Of course not. And so, Judy, I, I take it that means that what you would like to see Democrats stand for is uh, is is more in the fight for democracy itself. Yeah, I think I want to borrow a line from the first President Bush. This shall not stand. Mm. Okay. Thank you, Judy. Uh, Let's hear from Regina in Staten Island. Regina, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. And thank you for covering this story. Um, I call because I really do believe in what McMorrow did. And I do believe culture wars are an important topic of conversation. Um, Staten Island, even though it's in New York City, is a very, very conservative borough. And we need to speak up. I'm a straight white Catholic woman, uh, Christian woman, I should say. And I do speak in churches, too. I lead services as a minister. And I believe we do have to speak to this because we can't allow... um, Well, I'm very disturbed at Staten Island and the lack of uh, kind of excitement among the Democratic Party right now here. So I do want to get involved, but I don't know exactly as a non-elected official how to get involved Mm -hmm. as she, you know, she spoke up so well. And I really appreciate what she did. Thank you, Regina. So that's a vote for Engage the Culture Wars. Let's take one more, John, before we we talk about it. Let's go to Bob in Brooklyn. Bob, welcome to the show. Why, thank you very much. Long-time listener, first-time caller to the show. Welcome. I think I may have a partial answer for uh, your last caller. My first feeling is that the very premise that you set forth uh, in the question about whether certain topics uh, that would be more or less comfortable for Democrats uh, and the, for the party in general may be faulty. Mm. And I think the faulty part is that what we're really talking about is the calculus of white Democrats and whether or not certain issues would be comfortable for them on the, on the one hand and whether or not there's certain issues 
will be politically successful for them, on the other hand. And the bottom line for that is that the base of the Democratic Party feels like when all is said and done, at the end of the day, they'll talk about your problem, but they won't actually stand up for you, even when you're, you are the base that keeps putting them in office. And I think that that's one huge difference between the two parties, the two main parties, is that at the end of the day, Republican voters will always, always get the sense that they're going to get fed their red meat. And at the end of the day, their party is going to stand up for them and their values no matter what. The Democrats have a different set of evidence. And that lack of evidence is why the blue wall fell. Bob, I'm going to I'm going to stop you there because just just for time, we got a ton of callers, but thank you for that. And John, there's a lot to chew on in all three of those calls. Uh, uh, You were nodding vigorously. I want to go back to Judy, um, who talked about the history here of McCarthyism. You've written a whole book. You wrote a book uh, back in 2020 uh, called The The Fight for the Soul of the Democratic Party that tries to draw a, a line between the early 20th century fight against anti-fascism and against fascism and against racism and an economic populism today. What is, what is that history? And what was, um, what about it was coming to your mind when, when Judy was talking? Well, your callers are brilliant. I mean, Always. these are there, but they're right on the, on the target. It's almost like if I could have set it up this way, these three calls were perfect. Um, look, Judy got to the heart of the matter. Uh, There was a period in the 1930s and the 1940s when Franklin Roosevelt was president of the United States, uh, and he was a very imperfect president. I could list 20 things Roosevelt did that I disapprove of, Um, and he he was never as aggressive as I would have liked him. But still, under Roosevelt, in that New Deal era and then during World War II, there was a sense of experimentation with the Democratic Party, a willingness to kind of keep pushing the limits. So that, you know, Roosevelt's last great speech is, was about an economic bill of rights, literally making a right to housing, health care, a job, union representation, it, the equal of our political rights. And, and so you had this kind of remarkable moment. And then uh, Roosevelt died. And it's just fair to say that, that with him went uh, a lot of that energy. And the tragedy of it is, and I write about in the book, is that the Democrats learned a lesson. And that lesson was, especially during the McCarthy era, um, that be cautious, don't, don't push the limits. Maybe you can win you know, just by not being as bad as the other guys. And that has become such a kind of touchstone for the Democratic Party that again and again, on economic, social, and racial issues, the Democratic Party has a whole uh, culture within it and a whole team of consultants and strategists who say, dial it down. Don't push so hard. Don't, you know, go out on on the margins here. If you do, you'll lose. And the thing is, they're wrong. They're dead wrong. And and the lesson I'll I'll give you is, you know, Harry Truman in 1946 dialed down uh, the messaging, lost the Congress, right? That's how we got Taft-Hartley. And just keep going through history. Uh, Carter dialed down the messaging in 78. He had terrible setbacks in Congress. And in 80, he lost the presidency. Clinton in uh, the 94 midterms, they dialed down the messaging. They During the period after his big election in 92, went softer and softer. They they pulled their punches again and again on so many issues. They lost the Congress. 
uh, Obama uh, did actually, I think, a better job than Clinton and some of these others. And yet still, they didn't go for single payer Medicare for all health care. They didn't go for a big, huge stimulus. And at the end of the day, they went into that 2010 election cycle and lost badly. And so what I would suggest to you is that Democrats tend to win presidential elections now and again with a lot of promises, with a big, bold vision. And this gets to Bob's point, right? Big, bold vision of what they're going to do. They tell their base, get us into power and, and you won't even be able to imagine all the things we will do for you. We will transform this country, right? It's always this transformational message. Then they're in power and they govern cautiously. They pull punches, the strategists, the consultants, the money people all come in. By the time they head into that next midterm, they're like, well, you know, we did the best we could. And, you know, the other guys, I don't know, blah, blah, blah. They don't fight the fight. And increasingly today, I'll close off with this. The fight is about, it's about a lot of these culture war issues. And you will hear Democrats say, oh, we can't, you know, let's not go there. Let's just talk about economics. With all due respect, we're suffering from intense inflation, um, and we've got a lot of economic anxiety in this country. If you only talk about economics, you're unlikely to win that fight. You have to confront these culture war issues, and you have to push back against the hatred, against the cruelty, against, frankly, also the assaults on democracy that the other caller brought up. If you do that, then you're in that fight. It's a real fight. But if you pull your punches and you avoid the issues... I can guarantee you, um, you will see a repeat of, you know, 1994, 2010, in 2022. Let me bring in another caller who has a question that I think it, it might speak to this, though, um, in terms of the debate about what will resonate with voters. Uh, Michelle in Chelsea, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you. Um, thank you for taking my question. Um, my question is actually, it's also kind of a. Um, it's a note in that I listen to a lot of NPR and a lot of, um, you know, you have a lot of people on who are talking about democratic um, politics, et cetera. And there's always this kind of like focus on niche, 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 niche types of issues. And I'm wondering, like, where is the focus on bigger issues that encompass like greater swaths of the population, like, you know, aging in, in the United States and the fact that you know, a lot of people, especially after the pandemic, have aged out of the workforce, not by choice, but have been forced out. Like, no one ever talks about ageism. No one, um, you know, I, there's tons of single moms out there. Like, nobody seems to address single moms, which are a huge amount of the population. It's like, maybe, I mean, why not address those kinds of larger groups and see if you can get people to, like, swing from Republican to Democrat and, like, realize that, oh, they're going to take care of us, too, and our needs. Thank you for that, Michelle. And John, you know, what I hear in that is, you know, I mean, so in the past two election cycles, and it is true that there has been increasingly number of Democratic candidates that do center race, that do center sexuality, that do center gender. That was kind of the story of the 2018 uh, midterms in some ways, you know. Um, and by last fall, I guess, there was a cottage industry of think pieces and operatives of the sort that you were just talking about a minute ago saying that alienates most voters, that alienates most Democratic voters. We need to have a popularism. The t term became popularism. Our, what, they should focus on issues that poll 
well across. And, and I should say that poll, they were talking about including amongst like black and Latino voters that poll well across the base and stick to that. Um, so how do you respond to that idea and what Michelle is saying here that, you know, well, okay, fine, but like, why can't they talk about, you know, stuff that, that affects everybody? Okay. Kai, if I am shaking your hand, smiling in your face, and then I kick you in the shin, what are you going to remember? The shin kick. <laughs> That's right. Well, talking about these culture war issues is the shin kick. Yeah. And uh, the fact of the matter is the Democrats go out there with a lot of good ideas, frankly. Um, not perfect to my view, but with a lot of good economic issues, right? As an example, that touch a lot of people. I can't think of a bigger issue, for instance, think of the child tax credit. That right. went across races, across you know communities. Think of uh, caregiving, which was a fabulous part of the Build Back Better proposal, uh, which Ai-jen Poo and others had advocated for. These are really big things that touch huge portions of society. The caller's references to ageism and single moms, you know, having a national daycare program, right? Uh, having programs for the elderly, having programs for the young, all great. But when I'm kicking you in the shin, right? When I'm, you know, like pushing divisive issues, when I am pushing hate into this game, right? If there isn't a response to that, then that handshake gets forgotten. Right. That's the simple, simple reality. And I try I sort of make it so blunt and so at a human level. But that's the reality. I have covered politics for a very long time. And things that you cannot believe will distract do distract. And if you don't believe me, you ask President John Kerry. <laughs> OK, well, we're going to take a break and we're going to come back and talk about that, because that's an important uh, an important point in history that maybe everybody doesn't remember. I'm talking with John Nichols, national correspondent of The Nation magazine, who has been arguing for a more assertive, less spooked Democratic Party for a long time. We'll take more of your calls after the break and more with John. Stay with us. Welcome back. This is the United States of Anxiety. I'm Kai Wright, and I am joined by John Nichols, national correspondent for The Nation magazine and overall prophesizer for a more assertive, less spooked Democratic Party. And John, right before the break, we started talking about President John Kerry, uh, and you were making a point about why it's important to fight back uh, and using him as an example. So quickly, for, for folks who don't remember that history, recap that and, and, and why you bring it up. Ninety or in uh, 2004, John Kerry was challenging incumbent President George Bush, and uh, Kerry got the Democratic nomination. He kind of took off. Things were looking pretty good for him as the candidate, uh, and a, a group of right-wing donors uh, funded a, a campaign called Swift Swift Boat Veterans for Truth. And you had this incredible thing. This is during the Iraq War. You had uh, George W. Bush, who had not gone to Vietnam, running against John Kerry, who had gone and who had a, a pretty distinguished service record. And what these conservative donors did was they put ads all over, they put messaging all over that suggested that John Kerry somehow was a, a bad player 
in Vietnam, that he had he had disgraced himself, that he was, you know, uh, that that you just run down the list of things people might imagine. They smeared him. And Kerry and the Democrats initially said that is so absurd. That is so silly. We're not going to pay attention to that. We'll focus in on the issues, the big issues, the things that really matter. And the fact of the matter was that by the time that they came around to realizing that they were actually taking it, they were being harmed. They were taking a hit. It was too late. And Kerry lost that election relatively narrowly. And I bring that point up again and again, because I don't think the Democratic Party ought to abandon its, its economic issues or, or its big foreign policy. You know, I don't think they should abandon that. But I do think that when you avoid talking about issues that you think are challenging or difficult or uh, that you're getting beat up on, that doesn't make them go away. Right. That actually makes them stronger. And, and the fact is, if you don't counter them, an awful lot of people are out there going, hmm, you know, I don't know, maybe it's true. And one final thing, when you do stand up for trans kids, when you do stand up for an honest teaching of our history in our schools, when you do stand up for people who have been attacked, who've been marginalized, who've been harmed, when you stand up for them, yeah, you are standing up for them, but you're also sending a message to a lot of people across races, across backgrounds, that you're, you're ready to fight. That you pick, on, you pick on somebody in an unjust and unfair way, I will come back at you with facts and with passion, and I will defend the people that are being harmed. That message has incredible resonance and incredible power in politics. And if more people did what Mallory McMorrow did, I think you'd see that that it, it doesn't harm Democrats to speak up on this issues on these issues. I think it benefits. Well, it, schools are the chosen battleground for this uh, amongst Republicans, and you've got a story coming soon. Uh, I gather where you are saying that you've seen progressive school board candidates are winning right now, um, it, which which is that's not what most people would expect watching the news. I think what what are you seeing? Yeah, I just tell it very quickly because I know we'll have more callers. Uh, I, you know, I'm seeing everywhere after the Virginia gubernatorial race last year where uh, the Republican candidate sort of weaponized critical race theory, turned it into a, a tool to to try and get people scared and, and all sorts of things about honest teaching of our history, about slavery, segregation, all the issues that have continued to influence both our politics and our society. And and suddenly you had all these media, all these pundits saying, oh, well, this is this is an incredibly powerful issue. It's, it's great for conservatives. Well, I decided, well, let's look at it where it's really playing out on the ground at school boards, in school board elections. I happen to come from a very small town in Wisconsin. I grew up covering school board elections, the first elections I ever covered. And so I went out to places across the country where school board elections were held in the fall of last year, in the spring of this year. And you know what's happening? Progressives are winning all over, including not every race. I'm not going to you know, create some fantasy here. But they're winning even in suburban areas that voted for Trump. Mm. And they are winning not by avoiding the issue, not by running away from it, not for not by saying, oh, you know, that's silly. We won't talk about that. No, they're winning by going specifically into the details and saying critical race theory isn't taught in most schools. But the idea that we should teach about slavery and segregation and racism and how that has affected and influenced our current circumstance, that's a good thing. We should do that, talking about taking care of our LGBTQ kids and making sure that they are respected and have a place in our schools. That's a good thing. We should talk about that. And finally saying uh, the reason that, that our right-wing opponents are bringing this stuff up 
isn't because they care about these issues. It's because it's a political strategy done to try and win votes and achieve influence up and down the political ladder. And frankly, I've seen, I write about people who have won using that strategy. And I think, frankly, it's a good lesson, not just at school board races, but for Democrats up and down the ballot. I look forward to reading that. That's, that is surprising. Uh, let's go to Lauren in the Bronx. Lauren, welcome to the show. Thank you. Um, I believe that the Democrats should be seizing on a more statesman-like, um, grand, oratorical presentation that can inspire people and <laughs> make them feel that they're being led by people who um, have their eye on more important kind of constitutional issues. So I'm thinking that what drew me in or draws me in is some is somebody like, for example, Michelle Obama saying, when they go low, we go high. Mm. You don't have to get into what one of your callers termed niche issues. I think if you, if you have a banner issue like when they go low, we go high, who's going to, you know, who is going to say, no, we should stay low. Or well, when you have to, just to like spell Adam, that, just to interrupt you for a second, Lauren, and to spell out, to gather what you're saying here. So, so you're saying like, no, don't take the bait in these fights. Stick, stick to, stick to big statesman like issues. Well, I'm saying that those, those, uh, the small, the, I don't want to say smaller, but the specific issues I think come under various banners. So, for example, if you are like Adam Schiff, if you're going to have a, a platform which is uh, truth matters, then you can go from truth matters as a rallying cry appealing to people's highest, um, highest integrity. And then from there you can go to, well, so why should we be dishonest when talking about slavery? Why should we be dishonest? I'm going to stop you, Lauren. I think I got the gist of it just for time, um, but I appreciate it. Start big and, and then tie everything together as one. That's a little bit, I think, what I heard, John, you saying about the school boards. Uh, let's go to John in Shelton, Connecticut. John, welcome to the show. Yeah, hi. I, for work, I travel all, all over the country, and I work with a lot of people who would identify as conservative and Republican. And from their perspective, what I see continuously is that Democrats fail to speak to them. They, the Democrats can't reach them. They come across as elitist kooks. So all this talking, we're still not reaching the people you need to reach. Thank you, John. Let's hear from Donna in Bridgewater, New Jersey. Donna, welcome to the show. Hi. Um, I liked when Biden recently spoke to teachers and said, those are your children and we need more aggressive leaders, as your guest is saying, that's going to teach these kids at the ground level. The don't say gay bill has to be abolished because five-year-olds are so malleable. We have to teach them about that they are, yes, the stain of slavery and they are the oppressors and we also have to teach them about transgenderism and they have a right to choose their gender early because these are the future voters and we can't have republican parents teaching them otherwise because look in school i learned about calculus and i never use it but when you're out in the world and you're dealing with people you're going to have to learn how to deal with people from other races people from other genders it has to start early 
Donna, thank you. So John, we're right up against it here, but I just want to, you know, to tie all of these together, what I, one of the things that keeps coming up is like, what's a big issue and what's a niche issue? What's a, what's universal and what's only a, what's only for a particular population. And as one person tweeted at me, you know, um, how is race niche? Um, and so, um, I just, and also with the elitism point, I feel like a lot of times when I hear that, when I hear people say, oh, these are elite things, it, there's a subtext there that if you're talking about your identity, it's somehow elitism. So just respond to those things for me here in the last like couple of minutes we've got. Yeah, I'll give you the simplest answer. You know, Bernie Sanders, who voted for you know, every gay rights bill, uh, who you know had a history in the civil rights movement and you know, blah, blah, blah. You run down the list, uh, you know, vote against the war in Iraq, vote against the Patriot Act, um, went out to, you know, a lot of rural and small towns in America and drew crowds and, and actually carried places like Indiana and rural Wisconsin uh, as a presidential candidate. So the fact of the matter is that that you can speak to people uh, and and in a lot of places and it, it can work. And that's just the one thing I'll say to John, who is worried about, you know, not mm-hmm. not connected to people. But I, I think that that at, at the heart of the matter here is, you know, what Lauren was talking about. Uh, I do think that Democrats don't speak very often in, in poetry. Right. They don't mm-hmm. speak with that with that uh, elevated statesmanlike, you know, uh, exquisite language that that, frankly, the best political figures have, have always been able to muster. And the fact is that if you look at the history of it. Often, uh, political figures who speak in these you know very powerful ways are speaking about an individual incident. I'll quickly close with the notion that my book, you know, focuses on Henry Wallace, former vice president of the United States, uh, who, when there was a race riot in Detroit, instead of avoiding it, he flew to Detroit to talk about it during the course of World War II. And people said there are bigger issues; you should talk about other things. The fact of the matter is, he was talking about exactly the right issue at exactly the right time. And the fact is, if you do it. I think it can have a great deal of political resonance. We got to stop. John Nichols is the national correspondent for The Nation magazine. Thank you so much for your time, John. And thanks to everybody who called and tweeted at us. If we didn't get to you, do keep chiming in. Send me an email at anxiety at WNYC.org. That's anxiety at WNYC.org. And I will talk to you next week. United States of Anxiety is a production of WNYC Studios. Our theme music was written by Hannes Brown and performed by the Outer Borough Brass Band. Sound designed by Jared Paul. Matthew Miranda was at the boards for the live show. Wayne Schulmeister mixed the podcast version. Our team also includes Emily Botin, Regina Dehir, Karen Frillman, Kusha Navadar, and a warm welcome to our brand new producer, Rahima Nasa. And I'm Kai Wright. You can keep in touch with me on Twitter at Kai underscore Wright. And, of course, you can catch the live version of the show every Sunday at 6 p.m. Eastern. You can stream it at WNYC.org or tell your smart speaker to play WNYC. Until then, thanks for listening and take care of yourselves.